Welcome to the Education and Training Foundation Leadership Mental Health Podcast Series, Changing Your Culture to Embed Mental Health and Wellbeing at the Heart of Further Education. These podcasts are part of a wider programme developed for ETF by the Association of Colleges and are designed to create space for leaders to reflect on and share their journey towards self-awareness and positive mental health, including a trauma-informed approach. This project is based on the belief that through listening, learning and leading by example, a culture shift can be embedded starting from the top. And today I'm delighted to introduce Sir Paul Phillips, Principal and Chief Executive of Western College, and Dr. Georgie Ford, Strategic Lead for Healthcare and Nursing at Western College. So welcome, Paul, and welcome, Georgie, and thank you for joining this podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. You've both been very involved in this agenda around mental health and well-being, and indeed have been nationally applauded and recognised for your work. So can you start by explaining how you came about to embark on the work that you have done. Why was it important to you? I think from my perspective as principal and chief executive of the college, I started to notice the young people and the adults coming in, and I started to notice the barriers they were facing. And upon analysis of those barriers, it was very clear to me that as a college, even though we had, I thought, very good support facilities, we didn't have enough attention on the mental health agenda. And at that time, Georgie was brought in to be that catalyst for change. We knew that we needed to have some quite significant intervention. The location of the college in terms of serving a number of deprived areas, the location of the college in terms of being a major provider of SEND and high-needs education, All those issues combined to give us that catalyst for change. I suppose the question that was underlying everything is, if a learner crosses our door and they come in with a career aspiration, are we actually meeting that aspiration? Or are we needing to actually look at the barriers and then create the intervention and support? And it was the latter that was very apparent from looking at a whole range of case studies. So in came Georgie to examine, analyse and develop a way forward for us. How did you find out that you had such widespread need? How did you assess in order to draw the conclusion that a need was not being met that you needed to do something about? I think the first thing is that every learner that comes into the college, we screen. So in terms of screening the learners, we were able to deduce certain matters. And also, by then tracking the learner in the classroom, even if they hadn't declared a need, we had that feedback through our tutorial programme that support was required. I also introduced a mechanism called Agility, where every Thursday, people across the college come together for just 40, 45 minutes and we share concerns in curriculum, in resource management, in the general running of the college. 
and there was the theme of we need further support, we need intervention support, emerged at all those levels, whether it be at the beginning, whether it be through the tutorial program or the actual teaching and learning, and then the feedback from tutors and support workers through the agility mechanism again reinforced. So I suppose we had a multifaceted conclusion being developed. So Georgie, there you are in a position where you've joined a college and there's clearly a very widespread established need around well-being particularly. Before you tell us how you started to tackle such a, a, an enormous and important job, how did your findings link to external agencies who are designed to support mental health? For these external agencies, I think that it became clear that there's so much misunderstanding, especially when it comes to parents. We spoke to numerous parents of students within the college, and in their mind, the only mental health support for their child was a referral into CAMS. Now, we know as mental health professionals that CAMS, for example, are not the default agency for mental health problems, but there was a real lack of understanding amongst the community, amongst parents and amongst students, and there was such frustration because parents would expect this referral the referral wouldn't happen or it would happen and so the demand was becoming higher and higher and higher and people were seeking much more support and it became so apparent that CAMS the external agencies they did not have the resources to cope with this so inevitably at the time that I came to the college there was then huge policy shifts that said FE is key, FE is central, FE can support the mental health of our students and this is needed because the external agencies are struggling. And I remember thinking, well, yes, but there's no mechanism by which FE is to do this. There's nothing out there that tells us how we should go about It is. It's a potentially monumental task. There was no real training at this point for any staff. And yet the sort of media bandwagon and the policy bandwagon was focusing on these staff to potentially solve the problem. So the findings told us that A, there's huge misunderstanding about why external services are there and what they do. Even from GPs, there's misunderstanding and CAM seemed to be the default. So there was an instant kind of way in to work with these agencies to fathom what we needed to do. And I think that we all face that in whatever sector you're in, in education, we face those issues. And I know of many examples where young people have been to their own GP and been referred back to the college to get the kind of support that they need because of waiting lists and so on and the barriers that you've discussed. So we've established a need at Western College because we're understanding that our students are presenting with all sorts of levels of need around their well-being in order for them to successfully engage with education. What about your staff? And we haven't really come to what you did and how you did it, but talk to me a bit about your staff well-being. In terms of staff well-being, it's always been at the heart of what we do. I think we have quite a unique ethos here at the college of recognising the contribution of every member of staff and indeed celebrating that. 
but again, through a range of communication methodologies, which has been a weekly update to all staff, regular meetings with staff, setting up particular subgroups on well-being to look at the staff issue, etc., the implications of COVID, etc., we've had to get very entrepreneurial in terms of our approach. We introduced a Let's Chat initiative, which gained national acclaim, and we realised that we had two big issues. One, we didn't have enough resource in terms of support for staff, so we invested. And secondly, we also recognised, I think, that communication, particularly under the COVID days, had to be much, much greater, and that the support mechanisms had to be clever. It wasn't about a team's call giving support. It was about what is the mechanism and the communication that goes on in terms of making staff feel valued, making staff feel that their well-being is being considered, gaining the feedback from them, using digital technology to support them, so, in fact, you could have a member of staff delivering to a number of groups, obviously from their home situation, so using technology as well. So we had a multifaceted approach. At the end of the day, it would be fair to say if we had to invest. There was no way of just saying we'll manage with what we've got. We had to take a gamble and invest in more staff resource, specialist staff, counsellors, etc., to support our staff on a similar vein. We did the same for the students, but we were a large college. We're diverse. We do a lot of work with industry as well, and we were able to recycle some money to make this investment. What was clear to me was that if we didn't do that, and touching on what Georgie said earlier, the services within the college and the external services were totally insufficient to cope with the demand, with the whole issue of mental health and well-being suddenly becoming massive and affecting everybody at every level in the organisation, and also recognising that coinciding with this was a whole range of issues they were experiencing with their own families and the outside world. So we had to do a great deal. We had to invest, and I suppose we speculate to accumulate in this one, in that we felt by putting the investment in, we would at least be able to get the most support we could to our staff and in the same way grab that nettle of mental health and well-being, which, you know, even though the COVID issue is possibly reduced in terms of intensity, the attention to mental health and well-being is probably still as high as it was in those years. So we're still looking at ways to further enhance support for staff and enable them to feel comfortable, particularly to feel that their contribution to the organisation is recognised. Not been an easy strategy by any means. Um, FE is poorly resourced. The services outside the college appear to be poorly resourced. So you are going out on a limb, but there's no question of not doing it. You have no option. When we're talking about the impact of the pandemic, there is a feeling that we should be recovering from that. And what we're actually going to see is the impact for, for some years to come. And in particular, around trauma for our students and our staff. 
So can you talk to us a little bit, and Georgia, I'm thinking that you've been directing this for Western College. How did you embed a culture of being trauma-informed so that not only do the students feel that they belong and that they're cared for and that they're safe, but the staff feel the same. It's a buzzword now, isn't it, trauma, in every piece of research you look at. And we've looked at a lot here at the college. Evidence-based practice is fundamental to what we do. But to me, again, there was one piece of the jigsaw that was missing and everybody was talking about trauma-informed practice and it was this umbrella term. And we had a bit of a light bulb moment because for me as a mental health specialist, we can say we're trauma-informed, we can embed a trauma-informed approach, but actually when you drill down to the logistics of trauma from a humanistic perspective, no two people will experience trauma the same. So it didn't make sense to me that as a college, we'd put all of this investment into training with the recognition that yes, there is support for staff and yes, there might be external services and counselling, but actually a lot of our support comes from within. If we can empower people to understand about their mental health, they can start to work out what they need to do because fundamentally self-care isn't well understood. So what we did was start looking at the logistics of trauma. We know that the brain does some very interesting things. We know that for lots of adolescents, they go into survival mode, which means no learning. And we actually drilled down even further and thought within trauma as a subject, there's emotional health, there's mental health, there's mental illness, there's psychological well-being. So I think what we did here was brave. Everything we've done has been very brave. It's bucked the trend of what other people are doing. But we broke it down with the recognition that trauma is huge. So we started looking at emotional literacy and thought, why don't we start training all of our staff in the five principles of emotional literacy. Because if you're not self-aware enough to understand your own emotional distress, it's likely that it will result in a trauma response. But if you are equipped as a staff member, as a student, with the ability to become self-aware and label those emotions, the chances are your brain may not end up in survival mode. So we put this huge training program in and we taught people about their schemas, about their cognitions, about the five principles of emotional literacy. And it was groundbreaking. Not many staff had been versed in emotional literacy. It's something that should happen in primary school and often doesn't. It's a big agenda now, but for our staff, it hadn't been. And when we looked at the qualitative feedback, which we do, and we do often, it was incredible. It was a journey of transformation. And what the recognition was, if we do this for our staff, inevitably, they will start to instill these principles in our students. And therefore, that is a part of trauma awareness. So we started breaking it down. My experience of this is that staff actually are really hungry to learn and they're really keen to learn and they have this opportunity to develop that self-awareness that you so wonderfully describe. How did the staff respond to this? Was it an open door or did you have pockets of resistance or tell us about that journey? 
it was surprising and I was cautious, but there's so much research out there that says our teachers are so stressed, they're so overwhelmed if you look at the teacher wellbeing index. And it's worrying when you launch something else that takes up people's time. But fundamentally, we gave it a go because educators generally are human givers. They want to help. They're in the profession because they want to help. And I have to say, I was bowled over for things like mental health first aid. We had waiting lists. And so many of the staff were saying It's not that we don't want to help or don't want to support with mental health. It's that until now, we've never been given the opportunity to do it properly. We've never had an evidence-based framework. We've never learned how emotional distress is different to mental health or mental illness. And there was a real hunger, but also because we made it so clear that this training, it's not just a tokenistic intervention for you to help students, it starts with you as staff. And the biggest thing it does is help you understand your mental health and if you're not in the position to help somebody else. So they learned so much from it and then inevitably word started to spread and we ended up with waiting lists of trying to get through people in the college, which was amazing. We're going to have listeners to this podcast who are starting on this journey. You've said that it was brave. So the implication is, does take a bit of courage to launch these things. There are other colleges that we're speaking to who are on this same journey at different stages. Did you make it mandatory for staff or did you invite volunteers? And have you reached all of the staff in the college? The first thing we did was, as Georgie said, it started with a pilot The pilot was highly successful. Word got around the college. It became a whole college approach, Um, whether it was the caretaker undertaking this level of training, whether it was the lecturer, whether it was the support worker, the dean of faculty, even the governors got involved. And so it naturally transcended, I think, into a whole college approach. The agility meetings as well did drive it, not in a sense of compulsion, but they drove the message of success from it. And by driving that message of success and looking as was described in terms of the impact of mental first aid, etc., everybody was joining in. And we then turned it slightly to the what we call the sparkle approach. In other words, what makes us as individuals sparkle in our working environment? And that we had the phrase um, on our posters, let's get ready to sparkle. And that in itself also spread the message. So it was a various pronged approach. At no point did I say, you've got to do this. But it did become an issue that people felt left out if they weren't part of it, which is always the best way to deliver a strategy, I think, in this age. That's true, isn't it? If the wave is big enough, eventually all the people will move in the right direction. So can I just come back to a bit of a mundane question, really? Did you have a strategy? Was it a policy? Was it agreed at corporation and supported at corporation? We had a conclusion, I would say. (laughs) And the conclusion was, and it was shared at all levels of the organisation and at Governor's, that we need to have a new approach to mental health and well-being. 
and that will be multifaceted. That will be driven by Georgie and her colleagues in the first instance, but it needs to be a highly responsive system. It needs to be, in inverted commas, research-based. We worked with another college at one point on the Let's Chat initiative, and let's get something moving, which is not bureaucratic, but where people feel their voice is heard, but we also share the results of that research. So did we have a policy? I know. I think we had an agreement that the current health and well-being approach was insufficient, and we needed people to effectively sparkle for the future. And that message was delivered, whether it was by the chair of governors in a meeting, myself addressing staff in agility or a full staff meeting, there was no doubt that we were on this journey and there was no doubt of the commitment from the leadership as well that this is going to happen. Was it a dictate? No. Because some, we are thinking about those people who are in the education sector, not necessarily in colleges, but in other areas of the post-16 sector, who might want to engage with this as a strategy. And it's really what advice we might give them about where to start. And we often think, start with a strategy, start with an action plan, start with a policy, and so on. Yours sounds as if it was much more organic than that, kind of a realisation that grew into action that you carried forward. Yeah, I suppose if when we come to a strategy, it was employ a specialist to advise you and research for you for having recognised a deficiency. Then, on the basis of that, move to a whole organisation approach, which will probably start with some pilot projects, but have in mind that belief in it becoming a whole organisational strategy. Georgie, coming to you then, can you tell us what the impact has been, how you measure the impact of the work you've done, and if you could throw in something that went really well and maybe something that you learned from that didn't go perhaps so well in our realistic world of bumpy journeys? Yeah, it is really important. The impact measurement was one of the most important things. And I think it's slightly problematic in education that lots of interventions previously have been short term or focused on prevention and never really gained enough momentum. So It's really, really important for us that we monitor what we do and we monitor it well and that we're adaptable enough to change when it doesn't go so well or it doesn't show an impact. So for every training that we did, we utilised verified methods of gaining feedback. So for mental health first aid, for example, they have an approved version of a feedback form that really monitors what is effectively a transformational journey. Where were you before this training? Where are you after this training? And after the pilots and when we were doing our own research, we did so many one-to-one interviews, so many focus groups, because it's very easy for people to default to a certain response. And we wanted to get right underneath to see the impact that it had on their practice. And we followed a lot of our staff with this strategy for around the next six to eight months, because that's a moment in time. And we wanted to see the impact that it had in their classrooms, the impact with their conversations. 
And when we looked at the qualitative data, it was phenomenal. So people who did not feel comfortable having a conversation with a suicidal student now had an evidence-based framework, knew what to say, knew what the language was, and more importantly, knew the difference between mental health and mental illness, which is such a misunderstood concept. For things like emotional literacy, we asked them about the five key pillars of emotional literacy. We asked them where they'd embedded them in their classroom. And we constantly spoke to them. We constantly looked at that qualitative data. We looked at the numbers from every mental health first aid course. So this was a huge piece of evaluation because what we didn't want to do as an organization was come back with something else that possibly wasn't evidence-based. And it's a national model now because we spent so long monitoring its impact and changing things and adapting to things that it wasn't a tidy process. But what it has done is given an approach that is not generalizable because every FE context is different and we didn't want to do that, but it is completely transferable. When you think about the jobs that you do, what awarenesses did you come upon about your own mental well-being and how do you look after your own mental well-being? And so, Paul, I'm going to come to you first, if I may. I think in my case, um, especially during COVID, I really felt that responsibility in terms of the continuity of the college the support of staff, the support of learners. And I was concerned, it would be fair to say, at the very least. And I worried for what I could achieve because there's still that expectation, even though you operate as a team, that actually this is where the buck stops and you've got to get the strategy right. I think by using the Let's Chat initiative, we moved the college to an online college um, in terms of communication that eased the burden to some extent. And also that I didn't stop any of the normal activities. So even the staff meetings went virtual and they were specially designed. The celebrations of success for our staff still went ahead as on a virtual basis. We have a high proportion of send learners here. So I had to work out how we supported them and how we managed to get them the IT facilities, etc. they needed. So I think by having a very open communication, my governors moving their meetings to weekly with me, that gave me the support together with my brilliant staff here to cope with some of the demands. I think in some ways it's the consequences of it all which have been more demanding on my mental health, because you have to come to terms with the fact that actually you are having learners coming through to you now who've had a very raw experience pre-16. You've got staff who are under huge mental pressures, both in work and at home, and yet you've got regimes that measure the performance of your college which haven't altered at all. And I suppose... I've had to have a more balanced approach. I haven't been able to be as rigorous as I would like to be in some cases. And I've had to face up to what is feasible and what is not feasible. Moving forward, I think the pressure on leaders will be maintained. We are poorly resourced. 
the movement from private sector to public sector ties our hands even more. And the whole skills agenda, which fundamentally FE has to deliver, is going to fall upon FE more and more. And yet we will have limited resources. So as a principal and chief executive, it's making sure I know that I'm making the best of everything I've got and the best of my staff and I feel I'm doing the best. But at the same time, there is a realisation that I have a set of limitations around me as well, which gets me down and continues to affect, I think, my mental health and well-being. Thank you so much, because this is all about being open, isn't it? And being vulnerable sometimes, and also looking after ourselves and being kind to ourselves. So Georgie, how do you ensure that you are kind to yourself? And have you learned anything about your own mental well-being through all this work that you've done? The million dollar question. <laughs> um, I think on this journey, I, I think I love more than I ever have done in my life. And that's, I think that's the nature of research. It will teach you things. But the biggest thing I think I learned in this, you have to back yourself. You absolutely have to back yourself 100%. And we talk about the challenges of FE there will be those challenges for years to come. But I think if you truly have a purpose and you have a passion and you want to drive that forward, then I think people come along for the ride with you. People come along and they want to join that journey and they want to join that movement. And I have to give credit to Sapul for believing in, in some of these ideas. And I think when you find those parallels and you realise that you can be part of that change, it, it's something quite special. Self-care for me, I don't think is a radox bath at the end of the day. And we've taught our staff this a lot. That's not selfish. That's not self-care. That's washing. Self-care has to be embedded. And it's embedded now in our college life, in the leadership. We've done it. We haven't finished, but it's there. And people understand that it should be something so natural that we're doing all the time. And I think I'm privileged to watch that happen. And like you say, Georgie, role modelling is so important, isn't it, that we do role model if we're, we are all leaders in our own way, but as leaders of big organisations, it's very important that we act out our principles and our values in order to support and encourage others. So my last question to you both is, we've mentioned a couple of times about other organisations who aspire to achieve what you have achieved or to do in their own way something very similar, what advice would you give to colleagues in the education sector who are starting out on this journey? Any pitfalls, any big tips? And I'm coming to you first, Georgie, with that one. My biggest would be please, please, please take the time 
to understand your organization and the cultures that exist within it because this isn't and will never be a one-size-fits-all. And the very, very bottom starting point, we sent out lots of surveys. We asked for so much information because actually the key to the success of this is the people and there are so many individual differences amongst people and I think it would have been very easy to go straight in at the middle level with lots of different training but we had to understand if that was the right thing to do first and it takes time and it can be frustrating but I would urge people to start at the bottom because the training programs that we have and that we maintain that might not meet your need and it's really important that you adapt to your context. That's such good advice, Georgie. That's really great summary of a good place to start. So, Paul? The first question I would ask of any organisation is where is the passion for change and where is the passion originating? Because at the end of the day, if you're leading an organisation, this isn't something you delegate. This is something that you have the passion for yourself And this is something you drive with others across the organization. If you see it as something mandatory or something you want to delegate to somebody else, my advice is don't even get off the starting block because you have to own it. You have to own it with a passion and you have to celebrate its successes with the brilliant people who work for you. Two fantastic comments there from both of you to end this podcast. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your experience and your wisdom. And thank you also to those who have tuned in to this podcast. This programme is delivered by the Association of Colleges, commissioned by the Education and Training Foundation on behalf of the Department for Education. Thank you so much for listening.